Podcast One production. When you look at your power bill today, it's hard to believe Australia's energy was once among the cheapest in the world. This drove our aspirations as a nation. When Victoria electrified in the 1920s, it turned to wartime military leader John Monash as the first chairman of the State Electricity Commission. Monash was right when he said demand never falls off, it always grows. The optimism of the era was captured in this 1969 production, celebrating 50 years of the SEC. Power to serve industry. Power to serve agriculture. Power for transport. Power for commerce. Power for homes. For a long time, John Monash was right. Demand for electricity grew steadily as the nation industrialised. But then, 10 years ago, prices began to rise. So we hit the light switch more often, we turned down the heater, we bought more efficient household appliances. Incandescent light bulbs were phased out, LED lights phased in. But as our usage actually fell, prices continued to surge. Australians now pay more for their energy than almost any other consumers in the world. So what went wrong? After five years of investigation, Michael West has discovered the energy truth. Welcome to the energy truth. Walkley award-winning investigative journalist Michael West has watched this unfold for the past decade. He's one of a handful of media who saw this train wreck coming long before prices really began to surge. He's called out the political intrigue, the flawed decisions which have left us in the grip of an energy crisis which didn't have to happen. It's a complex story that governments and energy companies would rather you didn't understand. And Michael found most industry insiders were reluctant to share what they knew. So the truth has been slow to emerge. Over the next three episodes, you will hear the real story that Michael has uncovered, the truth about energy. Michael's comprehensive research makes one point crystal clear. Australia has a gold-plated energy system, which can deliver far more energy than we could ever consume. And he says consumers are paying for this. But depending on where you live, there is no guarantee of supply. Michael says many of us face the risk of blackouts and energy prices soaring higher, even as governments claim to be addressing the crisis. I mean, it's a, it's a frightening situation and it will probably lead almost as a policy issue on its own to changes of government in the next round of government. The seeds of this crisis were sown in Victoria. So, Michael went to see Jeff Kennett, former Premier of Victoria. He's regarded as the father of electricity privatisation in this country. Kennett didn't pull his punches. So, you would describe energy policy and the carriage of energy, energy policy in this country as, in the past 10 years, and as being... Complacent. To the point Complacent of, or worse? I mean, well, worse. Complacent to the point of abject failure. Because what's been happening for the last 10, 13 years in Australia, politics at a national level has all been focused on self, self-interest and egos, and at the state level, uh, they have been rushing to be the first into the most clean energy providers in Australia or the world. It's the biggest challenge for government. What you're saying is it's the number one challenge for government I think in policy terms. Yes, I think it is. So I expect the Queensland elections later this year. I expect South Australia and Tasmania in March next year, Victoria November next year. 
New South Wales in March 2019 and then the Feds in May 19. There's a very good chance every government will fall because their communities are increasingly being pressured by energy costs which they can't absorb and a lot of the industries in those areas will simply not be able to compete. If, as Jeff Kennett says, the community is angry, then it begins with the power bill. The power bill has become a quarterly household shock. How bad will it be this time? Who is to blame? And I myself experienced the same. I was on a, a, a discounted contract I was told by my retailer at the end of the contract, don't worry, your discount will continue. And I thought, okay, well, that's good. But meantime, my fixed charge was jacked up by 24% over three years. If John Thwaites can't figure out his electricity bill, what hope is there for the rest of us? The former Labor Deputy Premier of Victoria is now a Professor of Sustainability at Melbourne's Monash University. He conducted the biggest ever review of Australian energy bills. But we decided that that wasn't good enough if you're going to analyse what's really happening. You had to look at people's bills. And so we looked at a sample of about 700 customers' bills, which was a statistically um, robust sample, and found that across that sample, the average was that people were paying some 21% more than the cheapest offer nearly $300 a year per household more than the cheapest offer. And what was the highest they were paying over the... uh, That was the average, 21% was the average they were paying over, so... Well, 25% of people, nearly a quarter, were paying more than $500 a year over the cheapest offer. So you're seeing the the majority of people are paying well over the cheapest offer and yet many reports about how the market is working focus on what the cheapest offer is and what people could get. And sometimes you hear people say, well, all we need to do is get customers to shift and the problem is the customers. And we came to the view that it's really not customers that should be blamed here. It's the system that is leading to the vast majority of people paying way too much for electricity. Now, if you look at what the retailers have done, in some cases, I think the only conclusion is that they must be aware that they're misleading customers. And the good example of that is the so-called discount, where people are told that they'll get a discount of 15% or 20% or even 30% which sounds great, and they compete, the retailers, on the basis of the level of discount. And yet when you look behind the discounts, you find, and we found, that in some cases, retail contracts with zero discount were actually cheaper than the ones with a high discount. Do you put that down to predatory behaviour on the part of the electricity retailers? I don't. Uh, believe it's predatory behaviour. I believe it's doing what their job is, which is you know essentially to make a profit for their shareholders within the law, and that's what they're doing. And unfortunately, we've set up a framework which encourages uh, retailers to spend a lot of money on advertising, on marketing, uh, and that makes it very expensive. So when people ring you up at home before dinner and try to get you to switch your retail, Taylor, actually people are paying for that. Like that 
cost gets passed on to customers. Uh, when we've seen retail retailers send people around door to door to try to persuade you to switch from one retailer to another. Once again, you pay for that. So we've set up a system where there's an incentive for retailers to spend money on marketing and on retaining and acquiring customers. And that's very costly. And that's in our view, one of the reasons that the retail section of the bill is so high. Can you look at the marketing budgets uh, of these companies and the and the costs which aren't necessary, perhaps, which just add layers of costs for the consumer? What are the, is it marketing? Is, the, is that the essential? We did look at that, and while we didn't have power to require the retailers to provide that information, some retailers did provide us information, and retailers... Uh, would be paying, in one case, 39% of their operating costs were on this marketing and customer acquisition and customer retention. Australia is teeming with retailers. Victoria has 27 in all, and Thwaites found they consistently failed to inform customers of the lowest offers. So we have three very large retailers around the country, AGL, Origin and Energy Australia, they're known as the Tier 1 retailers. And they are the retailers that have two main characteristics. One, they're very large, but two, they are also generators. So they're generating electricity and also selling it direct to customers and known colloquially as gen tailors. And as a result of their size and the fact that they have that uh, dual role, they actually have lower costs than a lot of their competitors. And yet we found that in many cases they were charging more. Many in the media portray this as a direct result of privatisation, that energy companies are cleaning up at our expense. But Michael believes there's a lot more to it. The story began in the early 90s when Jeff Kennett began to privatise Victoria's State Electricity Commission. Well, I think you've got to go back to the beginning, which was the early 90s, when we as a state had a debt of $35 billion, which in those days was a great deal of money. And we had a number of utilities in the power generating area that were large, old, required a huge amount of capital investment. So we were faced with the situation of how we were going to be able to maintain and deliver cheap energy uh, to Victorian industry and households. And the only way we were going to be able to do that without investing in new infrastructure was in fact to privatise. So we embarked on the first major privatisation of energy in Australia. It was, in my opinion, the most successful privatisation program anywhere in the world in the last 30 years. Why do I say that? Because it fundamentally met three objectives. It met the policy objective, it met the financial objective, and it met the political objective. Jeff Kennett broke the network into competing parts, each sold separately. This protected consumers by creating competition in distribution the poles and the wires, and in the generation of power, that is the big coal-fired power plants which make the electricity. And it raised a lot of money, so much that the US buyers nearly went belly up. Other states followed Victoria's example. South Australia privatised, Queensland and New South Wales corporatised, splitting the state power utilities into a number of government-owned companies. The energy landscape was transformed in a few short years. And... 
prices began soaring, requiring a new set of rules overseen by the competition regulator, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, or ACCC. Michael asked the chairman, Rod Sims, whether this was a failure of regulation. Was there a point in this then? Why did it take so long from corporatisation to... Because the prices, if you look at it, they were flat from 2005, then yeah. boom, uh, 2007 or something, yes. and they've gone yes. through the roof. So uh, the privatisation in Victoria was immensely successful for consumers. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The Victorian government deliberately decided not to maximise the proceeds of sale, but to create a competitive market. So you had, I can't remember now, probably six generators in Victoria. Uh, There was a lot of pressure just to have one, and you'd have have made even more money, Um, but they had six. As soon as they were privatised, the operational efficiency of those plants increased almost immediately, so they were maybe available 80% of the time, and when they were privatised, they were available 95% of the time. So that increase in efficiency meant you had much more generating capacity, which kept a lid on prices. So all that worked very well until, as you say, 2007-odd, give or take a year. What went wrong then was the loosening of the regulation on the network companies and the greater reliability standards. It was the networks that drove that price you saw. And that was really, as much as anything, driven by government-owned companies. Jeff Kennett told Michael that, on his watch, things went to plan. We also put in place, when you talk about pricing, a uh, residual retail price cap, which would have prevented a lot of the abuses that are currently taking place, that is, profit gouging, etc., etc., But sadly, that retail price gap control was in fact abolished by our successor governments, being the Brumby government, in 2009. Because at that stage, they felt uh, they were comfortable with what I would call the state of the market. So we set the privatisation bandwagon rolling. We met, as I said, the three fundamental tests, both policy, political and financial, We put into place safeguards in terms of pricing and they were removed by a successor government being the Labor government of John Brumby in latter years. So why have prices risen? Uh, For two reasons. They moved that cap that we put in place and secondly, uh, all of Australia's energy have paid the price for what in the main has been New South Wales and Queensland putting into place what we call gold-class facilities. That is, they've overspent on capital, and we've borne the brunt of some of that. Okay, let's call this out clearly. Jeff Kennett describes it as gold-class. Michael West popularised the term gold-plating in his writings. But whatever term you use, the spending on the poles and wires, transformers and substations is the biggest factor in the soaring prices you're paying. These bits of metal might as well be rolled in gold. Bruce Robertson, farmer and energy analyst, first acquainted Michael with the term five years ago. Michael wrote a series of newspaper stories about it, focusing on the fact the electricity suppliers are paid not according to how efficient or innovative they are, but on how much money they spend on their networks. Despite Michael's warnings, this truth has taken a long time to sink into the public consciousness. Now... Both sides of politics have acknowledged their roles in this. 
John Thwaites again. Uh, one of the big contributors has been the so-called gold plating of poles and wires, the networks, and that's particularly been true in Queensland and New South Wales, and that's because uh, the networks have been paid by how much they spend on their capital, their uh, building of new assets, and so there was a big incentive for them to build more assets. Since 2007, the energy companies have gone to the regulator seeking price increases. They justify those price increases by claiming they have to spend a lot of money on their networks. In theory, this investment is about increasing the supply and reliability to the consumer. However, and this is the irony of the energy debacle, says Michael, consumer demand has been falling. Bruce Robertson. The situation we have in Australia is the network providers, the companies that actually build the poles and wires, they get paid based purely on their assets. They don't get paid for delivering electricity. They don't get paid for reliability. They only get paid to build stuff. So there's an incentive then to just go crazy and build lots of poles and wires. And that's exactly what has happened. And we've had an inadequate regulatory regime in Australia where basically the regulator, when it makes a decision and says, well, you're spending too much, Mr Poles and Wires Company or Mrs Poles and Wires Company, um, they come back and say, no, we're not, and take it to court with a phalanx of lawyers. And I mean lots and lots of lawyers involved here. Very expensive process. And the history of this is that the Poles and Wires Companies win. They win most of the times they go to court and they go to court every time. They go to court every time because you, the electricity payer, are paying for those court costs. When you pay your electricity bill, you're paying for a lot of lawyers, Maseratis and Lamborghinis, basically. Melbourne, in the early part of this century, the bustling capital of a busy state. For this research, Michael delved into the history of state-owned power. What he found was that once upon a time before privatisation, the bosses of state utilities could only raise prices with approval from government. What we've what we've actually seen with it, Michael, is you've had you've had two stages. You've had the companies used to be wholly government owned and when they wanted to do an increase they'd go up and in their brown cardigans as you once said and go and see the minister and say you know we want an increase of you know four percent minister and the minister would rant and rave and he said say i can't take that to my electorate go back and you know go back and cut your bills and they'd go back and trim their budgets a bit and prices were kept very, very low. For many years? For many years, up until 2005 it was, um, 2006. For the 16 years prior to that, bills had been flat. This system changed when state power companies were corporatised. When a government utility is corporatised, it's turned from a department of the public service into a for-profit company, but government retains ownership. This happened in New South Wales and Queensland, but they weren't sold immediately. In fact, Queensland still owns its electricity company, Powerlink. These corporatised utilities now exist to make profit for governments. The states received dividends, which grew each year with prices, and the bosses of those companies were rewarded with salary bonuses as profits grew. Michael argues this created a system where price rises were inevitable. And some of the worst offenders in this gold plating, this overinvestment in the poles and wires, some of the worst offenders are actually 
government-owned, but they're corporations. So who are the worst offenders? Well, the worst offenders are actually in New South Wales and Queensland. Um, th- th- they are your transgrids, your Ausgrids, your essential energies in New South Wales and Endeavour Energy. And in, in, in Queensland, they're companies like Powerlink. Robertson first saw this mania for building poles and wires in the lush farmland of the Manning River Valley near Newcastle, where he owns a farm. Um, you know, they build power lines that are totally useless and they proposed to build one down the valley where I live on on the mid-north coast, Transgrid did, and we looked at this proposal and there simply was no demand. Demand in our area was actually falling. Their own figures showed that demand had been falling. Look, just not far away from me in Lismore, there was another massive power line that was being built. The first stage of the project that, that, that I'm talking about, the first stage was built and it now ends, this massive power line, a three, the big coat hangers, you know, the really big ones, it ends in a uh, little village called Stroud, um, which is a very small village with a couple of chook sheds and a dairy. The thriving metropolis of Stroud has a population of less than 700 people. But thanks to gold plating, this village has access to enough power for a regional city. There was a substation near Newcastle. This is all in my local area, not far from where I live, a few hours away. You know, and um, that, that was never connected, uh, an Osgrid one. So uh, they just built a substation just for the sake of building it then? Yeah, it was, it was literally not connected for about 18 months, I believe, until um, people would... You know, the attention was drawn to this substation sitting in a paddock somewhere not connected. They were waiting for the demand to arrive. <laughs> they were waiting for the demand to arrive. And suddenly they went, oh, we better connect this to make it look as if it actually does something. But that was a $40 million investment. All up in that 2009 to 2014 period, um, they actually ended up cancelling about $2.3 billion worth of projects. Wow. And it's not just in New South Wales. Michael sources estimate there was $20 billion of overbuilding across the country in just five years. A lot went into transmission lines, the coat hangers, in substations and in transformers. But it's still going on today. Gold plating. Oh, yes. Transgrid recently um, was uh, stopped by the Australian Energy Market Operator and the, their spending programs were cut by $1.3 billion. Now, that's $1.3 billion that goes directly onto your electricity bill. And the trouble is, is that as it stands at the moment, they will appeal that decision and it will get overturned. And so the taxpayers funding them to do this. So, so, so what is... No, the-, the electricity consumers paying, is paying for that court case. The electricity, your electricity bill contains lawyers' fees. That's right, but the, the, the courts are funded by taxpayers. Oh, so yes. We're, we're, getting, we're getting hit twice. Twice. <laughs> and don't forget... All of this is happening while energy consumption is actually falling. That's the amazing thing about electricity. With the exception of the the LNG plants at Gladstone, um, if we just take them out at the moment, because they are big electricity users, 
basically the, the, the market has been shrinking. Is that because of behavioural change? People, the prices have run too high? Well, it's, it's two factors, actually. It's, it's energy efficiency. Um, you know, we've had two generations of lighting. We first had the compact fluoro globes that were far more uh, energy efficient than the, the uh, incandescent globes. And now we've got the LED globes that are even more efficient again by, you know, a considerable margin. And the prices have simply run too high. In my own area, I know that people used to always have a porch light on and you go around our local town now, I live in a low, lower socioeconomic area, and there are no porch lights anymore. People simply can't afford them. They're out the back, you know, with one light on and, and watching their telly, and that's about, that's about it. There's no, no other lights. And so people are turning lights off. They're using, um, you know, uh, pensioners, for example, in our area go to bed early so that they don't have to heat their house. Um, you know, like there are serious social ramifications of having electricity prices that have essentially doubled in the over doubled in the 10 years to 2016 and they're going up again this year by a further 15 to 20 percent on top of what is already chronically high prices for electricity in Australia. So more than 40% of the increase in your bill comes from this gold plating. Michael went to find out what government has done to fight it. The Australian Energy Regulator is the body responsible. It sits within the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission but it's independent. It is the Australian Energy Regulator which is charged with protecting energy users' interests. It's supposed to prevent an over-concentration of market power or even the creation of cartels which fix prices. ACCC Chairman Rod Sims. Uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, a, with simply standing back and observing the public prices of your competitor and copying them. My point is, if you've got market power because you're a monopoly, I think you should be regulated. If you've got market power because there's only two or three of you, um, that's a different matter. With electricity, you've certainly got three main players uh, in retail and in some areas, parts of the country, in generation as well. Uh, And we're looking to see whether there's anything that can be done about how they exercise that market power, but they've certainly got it. So... These allegations come up all the time. So you had corporatised network, poles and wires companies in New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, Those were the ones that increased their expenditure. Uh, So they were corporatised in the sense that they were... uh, They had a mandate to make money, uh, but they were still government-owned. And they probably took more advantage of the loosening of the regulatory rules than their privatised colleagues in Victoria, uh, much more. And there was just a limit to how much they could increase expenditure, uh, whereas in New South Wales and uh, Queensland, I think they could really ask for whatever capital they needed. They got it. The government well understood that they would get a regulated return on that, and so... The government, in fact, I mean, it's, it's not just the corporatised entities' faults. The governments of those days, and they're not with us now, they're previous governments, but they they were hoping they would get extra money out of this. It would be a transfer from the users of electricity, basically everybody in the 
in, in the state of New South Wales or the state of Queensland to the government coffers. So in a sense, it was another form of taxation. It's a sobering thought. Your energy bill is a form of taxation by state governments. In a moment, Michael will explain why we cannot rein in energy prices under the present regime. Rod Sims is about the most powerful bureaucrat in the land. He calls out cartels and predatory pricing, large corporations that wield too much power at the expense of the customer. He stops takeover bids and he approves them. Billion dollar deals are at his mercy. But it is the Australian energy regulator, not Rod Sims, that takes the power companies to court. And there is an old saying, justice is open to all, just like the Ritz Hotel. So it is, when the regulators drag the energy giants to court for price gouging, they're routinely outspent and outgunned. Justice comes at a price. And what you find when we had the New South Wales ACT appeals, look, the the network companies outspent the AR by 20 to 30 times. The practical outcome is that it's a totally one-sided... I mean, you can appeal anything and you know if you're a network company, it's only going to go up. Two years ago, the regulator tried to cap prices, but the energy giants responded with a lawsuit. They lined up dozens of barristers and solicitors for a three-week hearing. So they had an enormous number of barristers in the room, solicitors. They're uncapped as to how much they can pay their barristers. The AR and the ACCC are capped by government as to how much we can pay our barristers. So you can imagine, I mean, they've got... There was $6 billion at stake in that decision for them. They were seeking to increase the prices to New South Wales and ACT consumers by $6 billion over about five years, I think. But, you know, you're talking a lot of money. The decision would have saved households up to $300 a year on their power bills. But the court sided with the energy companies and the regulator also lost on appeal. So when someone says, are you willing to throw 30 million, 50 million, 100 million at this, well, of course, network companies are going to say to their lawyers, whatever it takes. So the AER and the ACCC can never do that. I mean, we find the same thing in our cases when we take on large companies. That's just the way of the world. But in this business, it was uh, just a one-sided free kick to push up prices. In the next episode, Michael will explain how this gold plating came about, how governments lost control and the conflict of interest for the state governments at the heart of this. But let's look at the other causes of the price rises. Besides the gold plating, there is the cost of getting a bill to you and retaining your loyalty as a customer. You pay for that too. And that accounts for one-fifth of the prices over the past decade. Now, you'd think that that last cost, that is buying electricity on your behalf and sending you the bill, would be pretty low. And in most countries of the world, it is. But in Australia, and particularly Victoria, we found that, in fact, that's a very high part of your bill and, in fact, in some cases, the highest portion of your bill. John Thwaites' recent review of energy bills in Victoria revealed how competition in retail has not delivered on its promise. So you're paying more for the company to send you the bill and buy the electricity for you than you are for the company actually generating the electricity in the first place. Retailers send people around door-to-door to try to persuade you to switch from one retailer to another. Once again, you pay for that. So we've set up a system 
where there's an incentive for retailers to spend money on marketing and on retaining and acquiring customers, and that's very costly. And that's, in our view, one of the reasons that the retail section of the bill is so high. But very few of us bother to read our energy bills, much less understand them. According to Thwaites, we have to get used to thinking of our consumption in terms of kilowatt hours. Can the average consumer or any consumer reasonably be expected to think in kilowatt hours? Well, my honest view is if that's all it was, maybe you could. So if it was just a kilowatt hour uh, charge, then I think people could you know, be asked to understand and say, well, you use so many kilowatt hours uh, and, and people would use that as the anchor for deciding whether to choose A retailer against B retailer. But it's not as simple as that because as well as the kilowatt hours, you have to understand the fixed charge, the daily supply charge, the different types of variable charges, the block and inclining block tariffs, this multiplicity, and that's where it becomes impossible. I mean, you can't do that sort of mental arithmetic in your head, so the only way you can do it is on a computer spending some considerable time. I myself tried it. It defeated me. Uh, and, and I tried to download my uh, data that, that, that I had for what I'd used. And, of course, the computer you know, objected and went into a circle and whatever else. Thwaites analysed only electricity retailers in Victoria, yet it is the same deal up and down the East Coast and in South Australia. Michael says they compete for customers not on price, but in a constant advertising and marketing battle. Their only product is a bill. Former Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett says things have changed and customers have to get used to new technologies and products. People used to take it for granted that this was a commodity that they didn't want to have to look at. And when they're looking at competition, they've suddenly got to start thinking in kilowatt hours. And how many kilowatt hours is this going to... uh, Do people think like that? Is it reasonable for the theory of competition to assume that citizens should be able to grasp a new language and behave differently, do you think? Just as as a theoretical. Many years ago, we had horse and cart. Then we moved to a motor vehicle. Uh, The passage of time, the introduction of new technology, new sciences. So that's always going to occur. So you can't just put energy in a silo and keep it there based on activities and trends in the 1880s or 1980s. Things move on. Try it yourself. Have a look at your power bill and then see if your provider is giving you the best deal. One of our team went through their gas and electricity bills for one period and found they paid nearly $100 more than the cheapest offer. But most consumers don't bother. They just pay up. On top of retail costs and gold plating the networks are a number of other smaller factors which have pushed prices up. These things, however, have entirely dominated the politics around energy prices. They are the costs of the carbon tax and green schemes. Although they play just bit parts in the energy drama, the carbon tax and green schemes are the scapegoats. The ACCC recently found green schemes had contributed 16% to price rises and make up roughly 10% of the bill. It would be lower were it not for policy mistakes. Solar energy's created more supply for the grid... But government subsidies on solar were initially too generous, Sim says. And they were ridiculously generous. Um, I think it was back when 
people felt, well, let's be seen to be green. You know, we don't think many people are going to take them up, so it won't cost much. But, of course, they were so generous that it went from sort of zero to 10% very quickly, and those green costs had to be passed on, and so that was also an effect on, on electricity prices. So it's probably three-quarters network, one-quarter one green costs. The final component in Michael's price equation is generation, the making of electricity, Michael says. Until a few years ago, thanks to our abundance of coal and gas, generating electricity was cheap and efficient. But now, that's changed. What we've got in Australia is a cartel of producers. We've got four producers controlling the market. And what they are doing is they are forcing up the price for domestic consumers and they are using that money to subsidise their loss-making exports. Gas doesn't just fuel the home oven and the heating in winter, it is also a key input to the generation of electricity for homes and industry. Michael discussed this relationship with international energy consultant Tristan Edis. If we look at what, what's happened with South Australia, South Australia is the highest wholesale prices in the national electricity market. And if you go back in time, before you started rolling out heaps of wind, where did South Australia get their power from? They got most of their power from gas. But you have to think through, well, what would have happened without the renewables in there? And the answer is, both of those power stations had had it. They were both um, sub-economic plants that were running, um, that were very old and required large injections of, of new capital. They probably would have closed anyway. And we would have copped higher prices far sooner were it not for the injection of additional supply from renewables. Now, here's the paradox, according to Edis. Australia is soon to become the world's biggest exporter of gas, but somehow domestic gas prices have trebled in the past decade. It's threatening investment and jobs and forcing businesses to the wall. Bruce Robertson. You can just believe the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, they recently put out a report that said one-third of the businesses... Fully one in every three businesses that they surveyed were either going to A, move their production offshore, or B, go broke, or C, pull back on production. So what we're going to see is serious employment consequences from high gas prices. People will lose their jobs. People will lose their jobs, and it's it's a terrible thing in a nation awash with gas. We are almost the world's biggest exporter of gas. Indeed, and, and there's plenty of gas on the east coast of Australia, and um, we are soon to be the world's largest exporter of gas. Currently, we're the second largest in the world. We're globally big players in the ex gas export market, and yet gas in Australia is two to three times the price that our Japanese customers are paying. Don't rewind the tape. You heard that right. The Japanese often buy our gas more cheaply than we do. Gas produced off the coast of Victoria in Bass Strait flows north in a pipeline from the port in Victoria to be shipped 17,000 kilometres to Japan. And still, after all that... It's often cheaper in Japan than on the east coast of Australia, according to Michael's research. Australia has plenty of gas at the moment. The fields that are ready to go, that have connections to them, that more gas can be produced. There is no shortage of gas in Australia. It's a total myth. 
propagated by the industry to try and force prices up for domestic consumers. They are deliberately restricting supply. They are starving the Australian market of gas. There's cartel-like behaviour going on. And I do not accept that argument at all. In the early 2000s, liquid natural gas was shaping as Australia's next big export boom. With our vast reserves, we were well-placed to supply a forecast increase in global demand. The gas giants locked in long-term export contracts and spent $70 billion building three LNG terminals at Gladstone. They all got their sums wrong. There is a global oversupply of gas and our demand for gas has crashed. In the domestic gas market, what you're going to see is demand destruction. If, if nothing is done about this of a material nature, you will actually see gas disappear, you know, significantly lessen as the fuel that's used in Australia because it's simply not economic to produce power with gas at the moment and it's simply not economic to produce a lot of industrial goods in Australia with gas at the moment. So you will see mass closures of industrial plants. You'll see another wave of the industrialisation of Australia occurred due to high gas prices. We caught one lucky break early on, but that didn't last. The price of gas is linked to that of oil, and when the enormous LNG plants at Gladstone were built, oil was trading above US $100 a barrel. But when the oil price later halved, the price of gas on world markets fell with it. The Australian producers were fortunate. They had long-term contracts struck at higher prices. They were okay as long as they could supply the gas. The reality is that we got lucky and the oil price went down, but then we got unlucky because um, Bloody Santos signed a bunch of contracts without um, before they knew whether they had enough gas to satisfy them. The LNG was to come from conventional sources and from unconventional means, chiefly coal seam gas often extracted via the controversial practice of fracking, which united environmentalists and farmers alike in opposition. Amid the uproar that gripped the CSG industry, New South Wales and Victoria respectively delayed and banned onshore gas projects. In Queensland, the coal seam gas supply did not come on as expected, and when it did, was disappointing and expensive. Michael says producers like Santos did not have the gas to fill their export contracts. One of the majors, Santos, was forced to wade into the domestic gas market and buy gas to send to Japan. This forced up local prices. It has been a disaster for consumers. There is now a global gas glut, and yet the price of gas has trebled here in Australia. Tristan Edis argues the majors keep prices artificially high by limiting supply in the market. Who owns the biggest source of, of gas that is, that is not able to be tapped right now? It's Santos, right? Why is Santos going to make available all this gas from Narrabri to undermine the, um, the domestic price? Why, why would they want to do that? You know, but our problem is, it's actually partly a key problem is that we've, we allowed a consolidation of the gas producers. ACCC stood around and let all of these, these, minor, these junior um, CSG producers get snapped up. And so we, we really don't have um, adequate levels of competition in the gas market either. We have a gas competition problem uh, as well as a, you know, not enough supply. Um, we also have a, a, a problem with, with competition there. In the next episode of The Energy Truth, Michael examines how this energy crisis is a result of political and regulatory failure, a product of unintended consequences. Investigation and interviews by Michael West. 
voiced by journalist Nikki Markovic, executive producer Adam Shand. The Energy Truth is a Podcast One production.